When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code INTELLIGENCE at the checkout. A better web starts with your website. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks, and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. London should love its bankers. This debate took place on the 9th of October 2012 at the Royal Geographical Society in London. You can attack this motion from either side. I was thinking on the way here, you can come at it from a kind of far left point of view and say that uh, we should love bankers because they so discredit capitalism they'll bring the entire rotten edifice crashing down. You can attack it from a sort of social democratic point of view and say the bankers are awful because they run their financial services like a kind of corrupt casino. They take the profit, so when it goes wrong, they land the bill on us. You could, take, you could, you could also support the motion from a sort of uh, um, ultra-free market point of view and say that the bankers are the only people who are going to get us out of this hole. Or you could have many other um, views as well. But you haven't come to hear me, Witter, on. You've come to hear our terrific lineup. Now, you can all read, um, so I'm not going to read out the um, biographies that are in here. Um, we're going to go through the um, speakers uh, here, then we're going to go to debate, debates um, from the floor. You can make questions and um, hurl um, observations, polite or less polite, as the mood takes you. And then we will have a vote, and then we will um, go to the closing speeches, at the end of which I'll announce the vote. Our first speaker is Jennifer Moses. She's an investor in education in a very successful um, City Academy here in London. She's a former managing director of Goldman Sachs and a former advisor to Prime Minister Gordon Brown. But she's on the opposite side today from a very loyal Labour Party member, Ken Livingstone. We'll be hearing his views later. But first of all, over to you, Jennifer. Well, thank you for having me. It's, um, it's very kind of you to have a woman on this panel. <laughs> now, I know I'd better speak fast before I hang, but I thought I'd start with this quote. London's job market for the past 25 years has been driven by two factors, the addition of over 600,000 finance and business jobs, representing nearly two-thirds of all job growth, and the loss of nearly half a million manufacturing jobs. Who is the source of these facts? Is it Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Boris Johnson? No, it's Mayor Ken Livingston's plan for London, circa 2006. 
This plan also laid out the mayor's rationale for supporting an explosion of large building works, mostly in the city, to house the growing financial sector. It talked about why Crossrail was critical to London's future. It is the quintessential document of an optimistic era when even socialist politicians celebrated London's success as one of the world's three great financial centers. But now Ken, and so many others, has changed his mind. I hate to call him a flip-flopper like Mitt Romney, but the evidence is damning. Now, only the truly tin-eared would deny that the financial services industry has an ethical crisis. Whether or not one thinks light-touch regulation and non-dumb status are God-given rights, and I do not, one cannot deny that some banks and bankers have behaved in an illegal or immoral fashion with inadequate management, governance, and regulation. Individual wrongdoers should be punished. It is not sufficient to accept an institutional apology and a fine. The bankers who manipulated LIBOR, laundered money, or missold mortgages and mortgage-backed securities should be prosecuted, and their senior managers and directors should suffer for their poor performance. But despite justifiable anger and frustration, it would be truly mad for London to hang its bankers, or to let them hang out somewhere else. For financial services is London's best business, and those manufacturing jobs, they are not coming back. As a thought experiment, let's remember what London was like in the 1970s, before fixed commissions on stock trades were abolished, before there were hedge funds or private equity funds or rich Russians. It was dreary, dull, and not world-beating in anything. The population of London had dropped to 6.8 million, and the government and all the establishment seemed to be pursuing a strategy of managed decline. Now, I am a New Jersey Democrat, and somewhere between New Labour and Orange Book Lib Dem, so don't think I'm here to praise Margaret Thatcher. But I don't subscribe to the fantasy that London could or should be more like Sweden or Germany or, God forbid, France. Make no mistake, London's future depends on a vibrant, successful city. And it certainly shouldn't shrink to be just a servicer to UK businesses and consumers. Britain does need more capital. One of the unintended consequences of the crisis has been that we have even more concentration in the banking sector than we did before. We need more banks, not fewer. More sources of consumer and business finance, more sources of equity capital. But reforming domestic finance, excuse me, reforming domestic banking won't make London an industrial powerhouse. We still need a robust financial sector that makes money trading, lending, and investing globally. That's what drives profitability in the city and tax revenues for the exchequer. But London shouldn't rely as much as it has on one sector to drive its economy. It should build on its great strength in finance and human capital. London is home to, or close by, some of the greatest research universities in the world. Yet there isn't as much of a virtuous circle between the academy, entrepreneurs, and venture capital here as there is in Silicon Valley or even in New York. London has great hospitals, but it hasn't yet got the entrepreneurial biotech sector that Houston created around Anderson Medical Center or the life sciences companies that have sprung up in Dundee. To build these sectors might require a revamp in bankruptcy law or how intellectual property should be treated, 
but frankly, it mostly requires a cultural change that encourages risk and accepts failure. In any case, building startups takes money that can only come from capital markets and investors. To conclude, I thought I would go back to Ken. As Mayor Livingston said, Londoners' income and jobs depend on our city being one of the world's greatest business, financial, and creative centers. Jobs in these sectors benefit not only Londoners, but all of Britain. This is why the Treasury has officially recognized that London's key businesses are the crucial tool Britain needs to compete with the rapidly rising new economies of China, India, and Asia. For Britain to succeed, London must succeed. Thank you, Ken. I couldn't have said it better myself. Thanks very much indeed, Jennifer. People sometimes say that bankers are greedy, but I would note that you, of your allotted eight minutes, took only five, which is very restrained, and I'll make sure that you get them back later in the, in the discussion. So thanks very much, and for setting such an example to the um, other speakers. Um, we're now going to go for our first speaker against the motion, who is um, Tony Curzon-Price, who's an associate editor at Open Democracy, a website I commend to you if you um, have not seen it before, and also the online editor at Intelligence Squared, which means he gets to fill in when somebody drops out, which he's doing admirably today. Thanks very much, Tony. Over to you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, London should love its bankers. We've heard it's good business. We need more banks. That's simply bonkers. The burgled should love the burglar. The victim should love the aggressor. It's a well-known syndrome, and one that the other side of the debate clearly suffers from. It's named after another capital, Stockholm. <laughs> the other side in this debate are asking us not to love the hostage-taker as they did in Sweden, but the white-collar equivalent, Fred the Shred, instead. At least it's less bloody when it's Fred, these ladies and gentlemen mind to argue. But actually, the business that's been going on over there in the city is far from having clean hands. There's blood, at least by interposed dollar bills. Ed Villami, the fearless garden, guardian investigator whom I'm sure you came here to hear tonight and whom I'm replacing, he's courageously pursued the story of HSBC its links to drug money laundering in particular. He's followed the trail from the ugly laundrettes in Bahia, Mexico, where poor illegal desperados deposit their dangerously acquired gains from running drugs over the border. These front businesses then deposit wads of dollar bills into banks owned and controlled by HSBC or Wachovia or whatever. No questions asked. And once inside the well-oiled system of global finance, what happens to that cash? Well, it goes to bolster HSBC's creditworthiness. And all of a sudden, HSBC can issue new bonds on the back of that high-powered inflow, that injection of M0 into its coffers. All those that buy the bonds, the hedge funds in Mayfair, can put them up as shorty for some other instrument that they're touting. And so... In just three steps, the low depths of Bahia 
are linked to the swell salons of Mayfair. But we weren't breaking the law, I hear the hedges cry. You can't punish us for doing our job and doing it bloody brilliantly. Okay, most of you weren't, doing, weren't breaking the law. But let's wait and see how many weren't. LIBOR, fraudulent mis-selling of instruments, sanctions busting. The legal challenges are only just beginning. And in any case, the point tonight is not about whether we, that voluptuous, London-y kind of we, should punish our bankers. No, that's not the point. It's whether we should love them or not. Well, what are banks for? They're there to make sure that the surplus that humanity can set aside over and above its consumption needs is put to wise and productive use. To make sure it's ploughed back into the soil for future harvest, as it were. And by the way, per person, that surplus is really very small. Just a few thousand dollars per person per year globally. That's what banking and finance were meant to look after. The extra amount that each person can set aside after hard labor's been done. So have the bankers been doing what they're for? No. Instead, they've been fleecing us. As I see it, they were given unprecedented freedom to do this job well in the, 19, in the late 1990s when the very last vestiges of Depression-era regulation was taken out of the system. Then what did they actually do? Well, in the space of just a few years, they managed to sow the seeds of at least three catastrophes. Catastrophe one the financiers gave Southeast Asia such a fright that we're still living with the paranoia embodied in China's trade surplus. The first signs, you'll remember, I'm sure, that finance was taking us off the rails was the collapse of LTCM in the 97-98 crisis with the huge bets that it had made on Southeast Asian and Russian currencies. China became so paranoid of becoming the victim of hot money flows and who wouldn't be paranoid of that, that they decided to develop in a massively protected, terribly brittle and destabilizing way. China has accumulated reserves as if they were pumping up the amniotic fluid that guards the fragile baby that modern China is giving birth to. So that's one catastrophe, a globally destabilizing Chinese economy that came out of our financialized system. Second, the bankers massively overinvested in information technology. We're still only now lighting up the fiber optic cable that was wastefully laid everywhere in the years that followed the Asian crisis. Remember the mania and think whether Facebook and Google and Amazon, great as each of them might be, is really the revolution that, say, the train or the car or the washing machine or the invention of plastics or pharmaceuticals were in bygone eras of technological revolution. Which would you rather do without? Facebook's stream or your car? They, the bankers, the investors, the venture capitalists whom we're told create such value, they fell for the hype. They drank the Kool-Aid and our pensions are still suffering for it. So that's catastrophe two. They malinvested in technology. Catastrophe number three. They undertook 
that simple, that age-old task of lending to ordinary folk to build and buy houses. And still they managed to mess it up. How many PhDs and tax barristers does it take to sell a mortgage? None, if you're doing it the honest way. Tower blocks full, if you're doing it the Barclays way. The fact is that the bankers have been living high on the hog ever since they were deregulated. And the hog, chairman, ladies, gentlemen, actually maybe not the ladies and gentlemen on the other side, the hog is us. And in piling high on us these endless ill decisions, they've even gone and made London a worse place for us to scrape a living in. Expensive housing, expensive schooling, and a terrible taste in overpriced restaurants. <laughs> so let's be honest. What have they done for us? Done their job badly, made a load of awful decisions, and even managed in the process to make our lives harder. Now they want love? Well, well, that's a minute, is it, Edward? Well, we asked what banks are for. Now we should ask what love is for. It's the ultimate currency. That because of which we do everything that we do. The greatest yearning. That which every one who has achieved anything at all in reality strives for. Bankers too. They were doing it for love, even when they didn't realize it. The love of their peers. The love of the father or mother who left them at boarding school aged eight and never collected them. <laughs> the love of a lost lover whom they're still trying to settle scores with. The temporary simulacrum of love that the girl high-heeling her way into your Ferrari represents. <laughs> so should we be easy with, our ha with handing out our love? That ultimate gold-plated carrot that we, it seems, have it in our power to distribute? No, we... I'm rather getting used to talking as London here. We should be like the stern parents that our bankers still seem to be trying to impress. We should be forgiving but firm. Do your job as it's meant to be done. Don't expect inordinate amounts of cash, that faux love stuff, in return for an honest day's work. And if you manage to follow these simple precepts, then we'll come and take you out for the weekend and maybe give you toast and milk and honey. If you're good, that is. <laughs> Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, we, the London we, that is, are not yet ready to love our bankers. Well, um, th thanks very much indeed, Tony, for that um, wonderful um, peroration on the subject of um, milk and toast for investment bankers. I, I'm not sure they're familiar with the taste, but it'll be an interesting experience for them. Our next speaker is, um, is, is William Wright, uh, who's a writer and columnist on banking and financial markets. Um, Tony, I was a little nervous by some of, having spent nearly a year of my life fighting a libel case, I was a little nervous by some of the um, particular remarks you made, which I think we have to disassociate Intelligence Squared from, um, uh, and, uh, mentioning no names. I'm sure the other speakers will bear that in mind. Over to you, William. 
Uh, thank you, and I, I feel I should start by thanking Mummy and Daddy for having sent me to boarding school and providing me with the motivation to do well in life that I've never <laughs> previously considered. Um, slightly more seriously, I should thank Fraser Nelson uh, for deciding that it would be easier uh, and more fun to spend a few days in Birmingham at the Tory party conference than coming and trying to make a case to defend why we should love London's bankers. I've spent the better part of 20 years writing about bankers, and I have to admit they're not always the most lovable bunch. I thought at first maybe one way of addressing the motion would be to pick on the London and to say that it's not London's bankers that we should be worried about. It's the bankers at all of those UK banks that blew up that are the problem. It's the bankers in Bradford, at Bradford and Bingley, in Newcastle at Northern Rock, in Halifax and Edinburgh at HBOS and RBS. These guys make bankers in London look positively adorable and very talented. <laughs> but as I say, that would be both pedantic and churlish. So instead I thought, <laughs> instead I thought, Instead, I thought I'd talk about another group in society who are not obviously or immediately lovable, and that is teenagers. <laughs> so a few weeks ago, um, I followed a link from Tim Harford, the economist and writer in the FT, to an interesting article written by a concerned father who had discovered quite a large amount of um, porn on his son's computer and was a little bit worried about how he should react to this. So he left his, he left his son a note on the computer screen which basically said, look, son, I love you. I'm not mad at you, and I won't tell your mother. I was 13 once, and that wasn't so long ago that I don't remember what it felt like. He, had, he went on, I'm not going to put a lock on your computer. I'm not going to punish you, because there is nothing that you have done or will do that I have not in one way or another done myself. In other words, whatever unpleasant things that teenagers do, and I'm sure lots of us did unpleasant things when we were adolescents, they're not acting in isolation. They're, they're, you can look at them as acting within the norms, the behaviors, the standards, and boundaries that society and their families set for them. You could even argue that teenagers, to an extent, uh, we get the teenagers to an extent that we deserve. And I would argue that we get the bankers that we deserve as well. If you start with Thatcherism and Reaganomics in the 1980s, if you allow market theory to permeate every aspect uh, of the social and political spectrum in the 1990s, you end up with this peculiar brand of Blairite free market capitalism that we saw in the decade running up to the financial crisis. This was a decade, you'll remember, when money was basically free, when UK public sector spending and UK private household debt more than doubled, with apparently no cost to anybody at all. It was a decade when everyone had the right to buy a house, perhaps on a mortgage of four or five times their salary without having the obligation, that nasty obligation of saving for a deposit. When it was perfectly normal to view your house as a tradable commodity as opposed to somewhere to live. It was a decade in which London was the center of the world, culturally and financially. But it was also a decade when we were all, using the London we again, we were all complicit in the super bubble of debt and consumption that exploded so spectacularly in 2007. This is otherwise known as the Ken Livingstone argument. It's taken almost verbatim from an interview he gave with the BBC in 2008 that we were all complicit in this process. And it's appropriate, of course, because Ken was running London for much of this time. So in this context, you can see that London's bankers, you can see London's bankers as effectively an errant teenager molded and created by London itself, by us as Londoners. Just as teenagers make the same mistakes 
that their parents made. Bankers made the same mistakes that many of us made, based on the same flawed assumptions and values. It's just that they had a lot more money to play with and to make those mistakes with than we did. I would echo Jennifer in saying that this doesn't mean that they didn't screw up or didn't do anything wrong. Uh, and that absolutely, if it is found that when they're found guilty of whatever they did do wrong, whether they broke laws or manipulated markets, they should be punished, fined, paid back their bonuses, or even jailed. But to tar all bankers with the same brush and to continue to blame them is not only hypocritical on our part, but self-defeating. A far better reaction, I would suggest, is to embrace them, to accept them, indeed to love them in the widest sense of the word. By love, I mean to build a relationship of trust and understanding with them that sets them clear boundaries, to encourage and incentivize them to behave well, to punish them severely when they do not. A sort of tough Victorian-style reformist vigorous love to impose a dose of reality and reform upon the banking system that it so desperately needs. In short, we need to provide the same sort of support and social context that any loving family or parent would provide to a truculent teenager. Why? Because whether we like it or not, banks and bankers play an extremely valuable role in the economy by moving money from where it is to where it's needed, which is still the best definition I've yet come across of an investment bank from, I think, the founder of Rothschild. When this function is well-managed and well-regulated, it underpins economic growth and creates jobs. If we allow it to be badly managed and badly regulated, as it was in the decade before the crisis, and arguably the 20 or 30 years before the crisis, bankers, like teenagers, start to misbehave. Of course, banking should be smaller. Of course, it should be reformed. The more socially useless parts of it should be shrunk and shut down. Pay should come down. Public money should not be on the line. But all of this, all of this is already happening. We should be careful what we wish for, though. More than half a million people work in finance and banking in and around the city, Canary Wharf, and Mayfair. Give or take, that's roughly 10% of the working population of London. The Swiss National Bank estimated recently that for every 100 job cuts in banking in Zurich, which is a decent proxy for London given the reliance of, uh, of the local economy on finance, a further 125 jobs were lost in other sectors as a result. So ladies and gentlemen, I would argue that we should support London's bankers. We helped create them. We even nurtured them. Once reformed, we need them to play a valuable role in our economy once more. And to be blunt, they pay a lot of tax. By not loving them, we're not only feeding our own bitterness, perpetuating our own denial of our own role in the crisis, but we're also postponing any workable, working our way towards any workable solution to getting out of this mess uh, in the first place. Loving our bankers may not be easy, but I urge you, ladies and gentlemen, to support the motion. Thank you. Thank, thank, thanks very much indeed, William. It's one of my absolutely favourite debating tactics to say something really outrageous and nasty and then say, but it would be pedantic and churlish to make that point, so I won't. And I congratulate you. And for those who are watching this, learning how to debate, write that one down. It was really good. Um, regardless of the merits of the case, it's just a brilliant tactic. Um, our next um, speaker is Adita Chakraborty, who is an economics leader writer for The Guardian. Leader writers are the cleverest people on newspapers, um, but you don't often get to see their names because they're anonymous. This is something which we at The Economist are very familiar with. Adita, over to you. Thank you. 
Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, you don't know me, but I want to offer you a deal, all of you. The deal is this. You give me £20,000 each. What do you get in return? Well, it's a fair question, because I can't promise that I'll pay it all back, nor will I use your cash to do good works. But let me assure you of this. Your money, your hard-earned dosh, will keep me in the style to which I've grown accustomed. And that, you can be confident, is good for all of us. Worth every penny. Put like that, I'm sure you'll agree that 20 grand is an absolute bargain. So who wants to hand over their cash? Anyone? I'm told you intelligent squared people are an indulgent bunch, but not tonight, evidently. Well, you'll have guessed that the transfer I'm referring to has already happened here in Britain. In just a few months after the banking crisis, every man, woman and child living in Britain was put on the hook for £19,271 each. And our money went to the banks. According to the IMF, the total cash that Britain committed to the finance sector was well over a trillion pounds. Over a trillion pounds in bailouts or loans or government guarantees on their activities. With barely debate or discussion, every household in the country has subbed £40,000 towards the city. And we have no idea precisely how much of that money we're going to get back or when. Perhaps you think I'm exaggerating, but if anything, this is an understatement, because that IMF study into the costs of our bank bailout was done in spring 2009, before £375 billion was pumped into the finance sector by the Bank of England, and before George Osborne's latest wheeze to hand over £100 billion to the banks from, our ta- from taxpayers' cash to lend back to taxpayers. Meantime, benefits and public services for the rest of us have been slashed away. Another £10 billion to be taken off welfare, we hear today. The UK is going through the worst economic slump since the 1930s. Whereas unemployment has soared, most of us still in a job will have seen huge drops in our pay. According to the well-respected Institute for Fiscal Studies, workers will be no better off in 2016 than they were in 2002. Meanwhile, the banks that brought on all this misery are still receiving their own welfare programmes and going unreformed. And the people who run those banks, ladies and gentlemen, are the people that the other side want you to love. Now, you've heard from the opposing side just why we had to give all this money. They've told you about the vital contribution that banking makes to employment, to tax revenues, and lending to productive businesses. What it amounts to is a yarn. It's a yarn that the crisis that may have been caused by bankers, gone berserk, doesn't really represent banking as we should know it. In fact, bankers, we've heard, are a force for good. Doing God's work, as I believe the phrase goes. So where do we see God's work? Do our banks provide jobs? Well, let me quote some figures to you from the Bank of England on how much the finance sector employs. It's a million people in Britain, which isn't a bad sum, but compare that to manufacturing. Even after over a decade of shrinkage, it still employs double that, two million. Now, there are two odd figures about those finance job figures. 
During the biggest finance boom the world has ever seen, the finance industry created no new net jobs in Britain. The second thing is that most of those people don't work in the city. They're behind the county or local high street branch or in a call centre. At our big British banks, eight out of ten staff work in the retail business. Their positions would be completely unaffected if we were to say goodbye to investment banking tomorrow. What about taxes? What about the largesse that we're meant to get from the finance sector? Well, academics at Manchester University added up the taxes paid by the finance sector in the six years up to 2008. The boomiest boom in all of history. And the banks paid £193 billion. Which sounds a lot, doesn't it? But it's less than half the £378 billion paid by manufacturing. Sorry, nearly half the £378 billion paid by manufacturing. Now, it's about that time that you get, after you've made these arguments, it's about that time that you get the third argument made about lending, which we've just heard. After all, this is why we have banks in the, third, in the first place, isn't it? To, challenge, to chan, channel idle savings to productive businesses. Well, the team at Manchester University looked at the official figures on bank and building society loans. In March 2008, 76% of all lending in, done by banks and building societies was to other financial firms or on property for mortgages. In other words, over three quarters of all bank lending in the spring of 2008 went towards pumping up the bubble. All those jokes, all, the, all those rhyming slangs about what, what bankers rhymes with, well, I think they're true in this case, because this wasn't directing money towards deserving parts of the economy. It was nothing less than epic capitalist onanism. Now, you'll be glad to hear that all the finger-wagging, all the telling off, all the various opprobrium from the Bank of England, from the government, from the opposition, that's had a marked effect on our banking sector. In March this year, the amount of money, the proportion of money that banks lent to finance or to mortgages, had dropped. It had dropped 74.7%. In other words... In the middle of the biggest crisis that we've been through in finance, still, three out of every four pounds lent by banks and building societies goes towards the bubble. What that tells you about is how far banks have moved from the kind of idealised role that we've heard so far this evening. The textbook simple role that they're supposed to play in our economy, of simply funneling money from one part of the economy to another. In fact, over the boom... The banks moved decisively from being mere conduits of eco economists' imagination to being actual players. And that's helped them to become actively bad for our economic health. But this isn't just about the economy. It's about us, all of us, who live in London. Because those financiers and their friends in the top 1% of the population, they need houses to live and places to spend their money. Christmas 2007, let me tell you, I went to a nightclub called Movida which proudly advertised itself as the sort of place that bankers went to. It costs a couple of thousand pounds just to reserve a table. So you can imagine how my newspaper balked at paying the expenses for that. But then I noticed that every so often, the music in this nightclub would stop. And that was a signify that someone had bought a magnum champagne at seven grand a time. 
And if you bought one of those, the DJ would stop the music and put on the theme from Superman. <laughs> I'm not joking. I saw someone buy three bottles. The lights went off and three waiters came out carrying above their heads these shallow white basins with a bottle of crystal in each of them. And the entire club clapped along at the fact that someone had shelled out 21 grand. Now, all that lavish consumption makes life more expensive for the rest of us. It raises how much we pay in London for restaurants, for shops, but most of all for houses. You see it very clearly here. that the central London property prices rocket, the rest of us have to pay more to move into shoeboxes in good catchment areas. And some of us have to move out entirely. This is the upstairs-downstairs effect, except that we're no longer talking about a house, we're talking about a region where only the very rich can stay and the rest of us get to visit. I, we heard in the, from the first speaker on the other side the view of a New Jersey Democrat about what London used to be like. Well, as someone who was born and bred in London, let me tell you about the London that I know. I grew up in a place called Edmonton in North London, which used to be the, the centre of a light, light industry in, this, in, in London. It's the place where they built Enfield motorcycles and Enfield rifles. And even when I was there, and I needed, I needed a job to get me through the summer, I could go and work in a factory, humping doors through awful machines. It wasn't very good work, but the people who were there were paid a reasonable amount and they had a pension. If you wanted to get a job in the place where I grew up now, the nearest you'd get to manufacturing is pushing donuts through the glazing machines at Krispy Kreme. Those jobs, they don't have good pay and they certainly don't have pensions. In the area where I grew up, the first electric light bulb was manufactured in a place called Ponder's End. About 10 minutes drive from where I grew up, the first British-powered aeroplane was built under a railway arch in Walthamstow. Petrol was first named and refined at Hackney Wick. All those industries that used to be part of London disappeared. What we replaced them with is finance. And the place where I grew up last summer was ground zero for the riots. I don't think there's an accident there. Those people who are involved in those riots, who live in those areas, they're Londoners too. Don't tell them they have to love, they have to love bankers. Thanks very much indeed, um, Aditya. And now we're going to turn to Anthony Fry, um, who I think is the um, only practising banker on the panel. Um, he's the chairman of the Espirito Santo Investment Bank. Over to you, Anthony. Yep, I've been practising. <clears throat> You're absolutely right. I've been practising for about 35 years, and one day I might actually get the hang of it. You know, isn't it fantastic how financial crises create the most convenient bandwagons for those whose overarching political objective is not to improve banking, but to actually remodel the entire form of government or which society was fundamentally different from how it is. So I'm really sorry to rain on people's parade, but I'd like to actually talk about what we're here to talk about, which is London and its bankers. And I want to start by talking about Jane. Jane left school at 16. She got a job as a very junior bank clerk in a very venerable London merchant bank. Over the years, the bank was subsumed by first one and then another American bank, but Jane got on with her job. 
She rose through the back office, very respected, and held, I have to say, in no little awe by the trading floor, an increasingly maternal figure to the younger dealers who she thought were just rather older versions of her own two boys. She loved her job, was proud of how she contributed, and had every intention of working to her retirement. Last month, just before her 35th anniversary, she was let go. Jane's now one of the around 100,000 and rising unemployed bankers. There's no public support, there's no sympathy, there are no mass demonstrations or marches that we saw with proud flags and the colliery bands as the shipyards and pits closed. Jane, just like the miners and dockers before her, is simply never going to get another job. But in Jane's case, she hasn't just lost her job. With all the opprobrium which we hear vented every day against banks and bankers, she's also lost her pride. So when you talk about bankers, just remember that for every Bob Diamond or Fred Goodwin, there are tens of thousands of Janes, honest people who work hard and, sorry to quote him again, but as Ken said to me the other day, aren't that well paid and have no role in the financial collapse. So let's be very careful about simply castigating the whole cast of bankers as we are when we avoid any condemnation of a group or community in our society for the actions of a tiny minority. But, it was said by Jennifer at the beginning, and I'll say it again now, the time for apology is not over. In the first decade of this millennium, many banks were extremely poorly managed Senior managers failed to promote the right culture, and in such an environment, the reckless behaviour of a minority contributed to the financial crisis of 2008. And yes, change there must be, change there has to be, and that has happened after every major financial crisis in history. First, we have to ensure that changes look forward and don't simply slam stable doors after the horses have long since bolted. But... If you attack the wrong problems and you identify the wrong issues, you will come up with the wrong solutions. Let me just give you one example. The latest European proposals on ring-fencing financial institutions within Europe are claimed to be an appropriate response to create stronger, safer, more secure banks. It's got nothing to do with banking. It's got everything to do with closer fiscal, economic and political union within Europe. The financial crisis has become an excuse. The proposals are simply not a remedy. You see, the problem for those who want to dismantle the banking system is that you can't have a free democratic society without free banks. Banks which ensure the free movement under rule of law from those with capital to those with ideas. Remarkably, and despite the decline and fall of the British economy, the City of London grew and flourished in the late 20th century the center for global finance. New York and successive American governments have been working very hard, let me tell you, to try and knock London off this very lofty pedestal. Now, I hear the cynics amongst you already muttering, oh, those bankers always shouting about the threat from New York or Frankfurt, always threatening to leave to resist higher taxes, more regulation, tighter laws. But it never happens. They never do go. And by and large, I rather agree with you. Groups under pressure always want to cry wolf to scare the politicians just in case the wolf is actually about to blow the house down. But because London doesn't have the sort of domestic economic engine behind it that New York does, it absolutely has to try that much harder. Yes, yes, the mutters continue. We've already had one from Tony, much in the manner of the revolutionary zealots in Life of Brian. But what did the bankers ever do for us? 
And now that muttering has become a positive crescendo of angry voices whose perceptions have been, I'm afraid to say, reinforced by all those convenient stereotypes about bankers trotted out by politicians and commentators. Now, thinking about this, I was reminded of the lyrics in Dire Straits, Telegraph Road. I'm sure, looking around this audience, many of you will be familiar with it. Then came the churches, then came the schools, then came the lawyers, then came the rules, then came the trains and the trucks with their loads, and the dirty old track was the Telegraph Road. You see, banks really are rather like the Telegraph Road. It's banking that underpins the entire infrastructure that spreads now from the city of London to the Canary Wharf in the east and Mayfair in the west. The lawyers, the accountants, the insurance industry, the venture capitalists, the advertisers, the marketers, the consultants, I could go on. The point is, banks generate the wealth. And it's not just the 50% tax on all those bonuses. It's those bonuses that go to support not just the things that some people have been talking about, but London's great museums and galleries, the theatres, the opera houses, the restaurants, the clubs, the cafes, the shops, and the hospitals, and the medical research, and the restoration projects, and the schools and the universities. And it's not by accident that people flock here from all over the world, not by accident that alone amongst all the modern Olympic cities, it was London that could boast thriving communities from every single one of the 204 competing nations. Now, this isn't some historical anomaly. You know, perhaps it's true that the average late 14th century Florentine didn't think much about the wonders of the Renaissance going about his daily business, but it was the banking wealth of the Medicis that funded the explosion of humanism and the arts that we recognize today in the works of Donatello, Raphael, Leonardo da Vinci, and Michelangelo. But none of what I've said excuses what one major investor described as follows last week. They have been inhaling debts amphetamine crystals for some time, and kicking the habit looks increasingly difficult. Now, of course, Bill Gross wasn't actually referring to banks at all. He was talking about governments. <laughs> However hard you try, and my golly, some people have been trying really hard these last few years, you simply can't ignore the role of government for the economic mess that's been created. It's often claimed that politicians were seduced, in some cases bought, by the bankers. Well, I'm afraid the inconvenient truth is rather more prosaic. The economist Graham Turner recently calculated that without the ever-increasing levels of government debt, the economies of both the US and the UK would have shrunk in the decade before 2007, unemployment would have swelled, and there have been years and years of deflation. Increasing debt was simply not economic policy, it was political necessity. So it suits politicians to have created the populist myth of casino bankers operating in a cesspit. But it was the politicians who first created and then borrowed the cheap money, and which they didn't spend on infrastructure or worthwhile programs, they spent it on winning votes. I believe that the tide amongst the political classes and the serious commentators, despite what we've heard this evening, is absolutely now turning. Banking is not necessary evil to be tolerated. It's a fundamental cog in the functioning of our economy. It needs to be loved, and that love needs to be tough, and changes need to be made. And the bankers have to play their part. A long period of humility from the most senior bankers would frankly be much appreciated. I look around this hall, and I reach out to those watching online, and I recognize in all your faces people who, like me, worry not just about the current state of the economy, but more about what the future holds for our children and our grandchildren, how they're ever going to get a job, afford a home, provide for their own families, and build their own lives. Whether anyone likes it or not, I know that many of you probably don't like it much. Our governments are too indebted themselves 
to be able to fund the things that we need to be done to create the growth, to finance our firms, to regenerate our high-tech industries, and to build the hundreds and thousands of much-needed homes. And that is down to the banks and the bankers. I am ashamed of that tiny minority of so-called professionals who try to steal our present by their actions. But please, tonight, don't let your natural human desire for retribution compound their sins by a populist vendetta, which in turn, I'm afraid, is likely to steal our children and our grandchildren's futures. Well, thanks very much indeed, um, Tony, not least for ticking the um, user quote from Monty Python box in the, the debater's manual, which is always very welcome. Um, I don't think I've ever chaired a debate where one of the speakers has been quoted in advance so freely by the members of the panel from the other side. So you, you've already heard quite a lot of um, what Ken Livingstone um, said in the past, or at least what he was quoted as saying, um, perhaps not always completely in context, but there we are. Um, that's another good debating trick. We've heard a lot about what he said in the past. We're now going to have a chance what he thinks now. Ken, over to you. Let me, start, let me start by saying, I mean, a lot of what Tony just said I agree with, and some of you may have seen the debate we had that uh, prefixed this uh, debate in The Guardian on Saturday. The vast majority of people who work in banks are fairly poorly paid. They do the job as honestly as they can. We're talking about an elite at the top that has been complicit in this. And as I, I said in that debate with Tony on Saturday, I, nor do I exclude many of the senior politicians who were complicit in this and went along. But I, there's nothing new in this. George Bancroft said of the banks, no man or body of men ought ever to be invested with such exorbitant powers that in the case of misdemeanor, the guilty cannot be arraigned without plunging the country into distress. He was the Secretary of the Navy in President Polk's administration 150 years ago. And part of the problem, I think, is that too few politicians and too few bankers actually bother to study economic history. What has happened is not unique, this last ghastly um, four years of economic crisis. It happened uh, in between 1929 and the 1930s, and it's happened again and again in our society. And there's a clear pattern. I, the, that quote from Bancroft I got from Arthur Schlesinger. Uh, amazing book that he wrote uh, during the Second World War about President Jackson. And President Jackson had a struggle with Nicholas Biddle, who was the boss of the Bank of America. And what Schlesinger says about Biddle is this. He plainly preferred a speculative economy with quick expansion, huge gains, huge risks, willing to take the chance of depression for the opportunities of boom. And you could go back and find so many similar parallels in Britain, America, and in other major capitalist nations. It seems almost as though we go through a cycle. Banks go mad. There is a catastrophic recession, sometimes a depression. New rules are brought in. The response to the Great Depression in, 19, in 1930s was the Glass-Steagall Act, which separated the sort of banking function we all know and understand and use from the investment stroke speculative um, stuff that was going on that brings the system down. 
And then 50 years pass, and all the politicians can't remember eh, about the problems of 50 years ago. Eh, they weren't born. And the banks start lobbying to remove the restrictions, and the thing happens again. That's exactly what happened. In the 1970s, the pressure built up to reduce the restrictions on the banks. We were told they were holding back a dynamic sector of the economy, and Reagan and Thatcher came to power and started that process. And to their shame, Clinton and Blair went along with it and didn't challenge their orthodoxy. And I have a horrible feeling, if we could travel forward in time 60 or 70 years, there'll be a similar debate to this at the next great crisis, after politicians have been conned into removing the restrictions that I assume and hope will be brought into place, particularly if uh, the Vickers report separating those two functions of banking is carried out. Now, as I say, there's this difference between the ordinary decent bankers that work and this elite at the top. Nor is that new. It was suppressed for 50 years because the documents were sealed. And it was only in the 1990s that we discovered that the governor of the Bank of England, Sir Montague Norman, in the middle of the Second World War, transferred a large part of Britain's gold reserves to Nazi Germany because he didn't think the war should override financial obligations. And there's a nice, when the minutes uh, were passed up to Churchill, there's the nearest thing you get to an expletive um, from Churchill on this, I think, what the hell is going on? How could a banker, how could someone who'd been at the top of British society uh, almost all his life think that he was going to uh, undermine our entire war effort by transferring gold to Nazi Germany when we were locked in a death struggle against the greatest evil in human history? What sort of moral incontinence uh, do you require to have to take a decision like that? And then you look at, uh, I, I often make them say, say Fred West rather than Fred Goodwin, which shows how <laughs> these figures are linked in my mind. But I'll tell you this, if you're a small business person and you go into a bank and say, look, I've got a good idea, I need 50 grand to get it off the ground, they'll most probably get round to lending you the money, not so much at the moment, but in earlier times, but they'll make you put your house up as a security in case it goes down, then they take your house. But every one of those bankers at the top, whether it's Bob Diamond or Fred Goodwin, negotiated their contracts so that however spectacular or corrupt the actions that happened under their regime, they retired with all their pension, all their benefits, and a huge payoff. And I think there is something wrong at the very top. And it was a, it's a culture that spewed down and, and infected a lot of people as well. This culture of greed that has overtaken us over the last 30 years. This idea that there's no such thing as society, just what you can get yourself. Buy your own council house. A lot of people very badly hurt by that and encouraged to buy it and then found they couldn't sell it because it wasn't in a particularly desirable area. All those people persuaded after a lifetime of saving in their local building society. Oh, this awful old mutual building society, very boring. Why don't they all just become real proper independent um, financial institutions and be out there competing with the rest, just be motivated by profit? And people voted to do it, and they got their pay off their shares, but not a single one of the building societies that took that route still exists as an independent organisation. So I... Not denouncing uh, all the bankers. I'm denouncing the elite. 
who got the politicians to roll over, and I was present at some of the meetings. I remember hey, was most of the financial elite in London are meeting with Gordon Brown, and I was there as the mayor of London, and I was saying, I need to get about £15 billion to build Crossrail. And they were told, oh, no, you, you can't increase borrowing. We've got to keep state borrowing low. But as soon as their banks went up the swanee, they, they said, damn certain that state debt massively increased in order to secure the position of their banks. And so I think what we need to do is rebalance not just our bankers' mentality, but the whole of our society. I do believe in a society where we should all be in this together. It's very hard to sustain that when the inequalities of wealth get worse. And the point I, I want to end on is this. I, it had, these, this freedom for banks hasn't delivered us what we really wanted, a strong and sustainable economy that grows. Because if you look at what makes a great economy, if you look at the history of modern capitalism. Britain became the world's superpower for 100 years because we were the first society ever to invest 7% of our GDP. A America got the domination of the 20th century because after their civil war, they raised their level of investment to 19%. West Germany led Europe out of the devastation of the Second World War and in the peak year, 1973, invested 25%. Japan leapfrogged to being the second most powerful economy in the world by the end of the 1960s by investing in its peak year 38%. China, in the year of the crash in 2008, was investing 43%. It said to its bankers, who I think are a bit more deferential to the government than ours are, <laughs> it said to its bankers, increase investment to prevent a catastrophic collapse, they upped it to 46%. We, in our peak year, we find in that year Germany got 25%, we struggled up to 20 Now we're just over 10%. If you look at all the economies that are struggling, like America and Britain, the collapse has been in investment. I want banks that actually prioritise investing in their domestic market creating the new products and processes and opportunities for employment, not getting caught up, you know, oh, I've just sold £500 million worth of bonds or whatever I, to someone, it took all of 15 minutes on the computer. I, that is speculation, not investment. We need to rebalance that. If we can do that, we can come out of this. We get the separation between the retail banking and that investment and speculation, but shift away from the speculation towards the investment. That's what made Britain a great power, America a great power, and others. Until we get back to that, and away from the casino mentality of banking, we will never be able to give all of our people the opportunities they have a right to expect. Thank you very much. Listeners to the Intelligence Squared podcast are eligible for a special offer with Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and simple to build your own website and online shop. The easy-to-use drag-and-drop tools, responsive designs, and 24-7 customer support teams means you can create a beautiful designed website for as little as £5 a month. If you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code INTELLIGENCE to get 10% off your first purchase. Thank, thanks very much indeed uh, for, for that, Ken Livingstone. And we're now going to go to 
um, questions and points and interventions from the floor, so please sharpen your wits and your words. But before that, um, I'll just give you the uh, result of the vote as you came in, which is that for the motion, saying that we, London should love its bankers, is 305, against is 140, and don't know is 165. And um, having stud, stud, studied maths to university level, I can tell you that that means that the, um, to, to get a tie, the opponents of this motion, the banker bashers, will have to win over all the don't knows, um, or possibly some from the, from, from the other side. So a bit of a mountain um, to climb, but we will see what the result of the speeches has been and also the points that you make. So I'm going to try and split fairly between the balcony and the um, ground floor. We don't believe in a two-tier society here at um, Intelligence Squared. Um, so please stick your hands up and please keep it brief. Gentlemen up there, go to the microphone, please. So you're first. Yes, go on, I'm pointing at you. Stand up, go on. And stick your hand up down here if you want to be called next. Um, I was wondering, for the proposition, they've talked a lot about how the banks during the boom... Uh, raised a lot of money for the whole of society, but I go to school um, in Edmonton, where Adita mentioned, and there there hasn't been an incredibly incredible raise in the standard of life for people there. And in fact, really, what the banks did, as far as I can see, is made the very wealthy very, very wealthy, and there wasn't really for the whole of society. So, what I'd like to ask them is how they think we should love banks when they're only benefiting a small section of society. Very good. Thanks very much indeed. Question in the chap in the black T-shirt by the aisle there. Microphone going to you. And then after that, the gentleman blue with his hand up. Go ahead. Uh, good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Matthew, and um, my background or relevance to this is that uh, last summer I interned for 10 weeks um, in the mergers and acquisitions department of uh, Credit Suisse, so I have some sort of view of the inside workings of the city. And um, just in terms of my own experience, I'd like to point out that this... Much to my dismay, this uh, image of uh, you know, £2,000 bottles of champagne in Movida and um, you know, every Thursday night going out with Russian models is completely and utterly mythical. Um, do, most, do, 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 you, do you have a question as well? Yes, no, I do, following, following this. Yeah. Most, most people there work astonishingly hard, get married in their early 30s and pay a hell of a lot more tax than Ken Livingston does. Um, <laughs> Let's try not to find okay. any... And, blows, uh, and my question is, what is the economic alternative for London to make it prosper as it is currently prospering? It's sheer lunacy to go back 150 years to when we were, um, you know, this, this idealised manufacturing superpower right. and to try and make us compete on okay. you know, equal terms with countries like China, whose labour costs are so much lower than ours. Um, our competitive advantage in this country is in high-value-added industries such as finance. And just because London's good at that doesn't mean we should you know, shun it and get rid of it. Very good. Sorry to cut you off. We've got to try and get as many points in. The gentleman in the blue shirt there, so sit your hand up a bit higher so the microphone can see you. That's very, it's coming to you now. I have two quick questions. Uh, the first is for you, Edward, uh, or the Intelligence Squared people. Was it hard to find some people to speak on behalf of the banker motion? Uh, and the, question, the general question for the panel is as follows. Pete Peterson, the former U.S. Secretary of the uh, Treasury in the United States uh, and, the, and subsequently the founder of Blackstone, is one of the people who has benefited most profoundly in terms of wealth creation. He wrote an article in 1986 
lamenting in a profound way, expressing grave concerns about the rise of investment banking in particular, as well as other high-paying service professions on the grounds that it's robbing the country of Marconis and Edisons and producing good ones and diamonds. I'd like some comments on that. Thanks very much indeed. Right, we've got um, three and a half questions there. I'd say that um, Intelligence Squared always makes enormous efforts to get absolutely the best people, and we always succeed. So that's um, <laughs> fine, Assume, assuming they don't turn out, turn out to be in Mexico on the day of the debate. Um, so um, yeah, we've got three questions there. First of all, what have the banks um, done for Edmonton? Um, I have been to Edmonton, actually. I'm, as a matter of fact, I'm sorry I haven't been to your school. Um, I probably should pay to visit. Um, I, I don't think my argument or anyone else on this side was that banks have sorted out every problem um, in every area um, of society. And I don't think that's the bank's job. I think that's what's called the government's job. I don't think the question of funding of public education is a question that can be resolved by the banks or indeed by, um, by private money. That doesn't mean to say that it's not an issue that needs to be tackled, but I go back to what I said in the interview of The Guardian on Saturday. The hard fact is that for a very large number of years, governments were receiving large tax revenues, which in my opinion, they were spending on things which got them votes. They weren't spending on things which is investing in infrastructure, and we are paying the penalty for that now, and that includes, in my view, most seriously, lamentable failure of governments to invest in education. Thanks very much indeed. And then... <laughs> so, and Aditya, I think the, the next question about the alternative is probably for you. You painted a very eloquent picture of the Edmonton as part of the manufacturing heartland of this country when we were a really huge manufacturing country. Is it, is it realistic to go back to making, to make, to making those sort of things? Um, well, you don't need to go back 150 years. You can just go over the, the channel. Um, because Germany's got a pretty good value-added manufacturing industry, hasn't lost much of that. Um, I think where, where I, actually to move away from the confines of debate and just to deal head-on with, with a topic, which I think is really important, it's not about what bankers should be doing to help places like Edmonton. It's about what we should be doing to have a, a livable, sustainable economy in London and the UK. And the problem we've got is that all the love, all the attention, all the resources of our political classes have been directed towards one sector. And that's left the rest of the country and the rest of the capital behind. So that, as the last speaker said, the brightest minds in Britain today, they don't go into Marconi or Edison or doing you know, real innovations. They go and do these fake innovations in finance. And I'll quote someone back to you um, on the subject of innovations. There was a gentleman called Paul Volcker who ran the Federal Reserve in the 1980s, one of the most famous central bankers there ever was. And four years ago, he said that in finance, the last great innovation he could think of was a cash machine. And that since then, there have been barely any innovations worth talking of, apart from two, which nearly sunk the entire world economy. So right. that's where we're sending our brightest and best, to go and work in, in, in a sector of the economy where they can claim a huge amount of money and bankrupt their economies. Well... I'm going to ask Jennifer to respond to that. I mean, Go Goldman Sachs, um, uh, for years, was the, was the um, em employer of choice for the absolutely brightest people. If you had a double PhD in sort of rocket science and further maths, that's where you went to go and write algorithms to allow people to um, make small profits on um, very complicated financial markets. Is that the best use of our best brains, that they should be um, doing maths to make, do make the bank sums add up? 
Well, I guess what I'd first say is I think people should do it what they want to do. So I'm not sure that we or the government or anyone else should tell people what the best use is. I think that markets come and go. Um, my eldest daughter is a sophomore at Stanford University, and I can assure you no one in her class is that interested in finance. They're interested in starting up companies. And I think that's a reflection of the cycle we're in. And it's very different from when I was in university. And there was an era when everyone wanted to go work at Rolls-Royce and BAE. And by the way, I think we do see a lot of talented young people going into very, very high-quality advanced manufacturing. I, I don't think we can just wish that we were in, back in an era when we had all kinds of manufacturing and that they were high-quality, high-paying jobs. Germany is an anomaly in the Western world in terms of the percentage of its economy that's in manufacturing. Young people are very sensible. Most people are very sensible. They're going to go where they see opportunity. And we have to create a tax and regulatory and education environment. And in this, I entirely agree. That's a critical investment for the government. And I think actually the labor government made a huge investment in education that's being carried on, but it's going to take a lot more. And we will see people go where they have opportunity. Good. Let's take some more questions. Um, Hands up. Uh, Lady in the front with the scarf on. Yes, go ahead. No, 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 in the front of that row there. Um, Jennifer Moses says she thought that the rogue bankers should be punished. And I think most ordinary people who know nothing about any of this, including myself, feel that nobody has been punished. And I'd like to know why nobody is being punished, either in America or here. Thank you. Very good. That's a nice, sharp question. And let's take anyone up, anyone up in, the, in, the, in the balcony who's uh, dying to say something very quiet. Oh, yes, gentleman over there with his hand. Stand up so we can see you. Go ahead, sir. Um, we hear a lot about bankers and the people that work in the banks, but we don't hear very much about the people that own the banks and the shareholders. And, and one question for the panel as a whole would, would be what role would they have to play in creating a, a, a better future for, for, for banking? So how, how, how do you mean in practical terms? I didn't quite follow that. Um, well, we hear a lot about bankers in terms of the people that work in the banks uh, and not so much about the shareholders as the people that own the banks. Oh. Um, and really just the views of the panel on the role of shareholders uh, in, in the development of, of banking. Good. Um, Anthony, two very sharp questions for you. One, why bankers paid so hugely much more than everyone else, even when their banks go bust? And secondly, why hasn't anyone been punished um, for the fiascos of the past few years? Well, look, well, I'll, I'll take the second one first. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that that's one of the reasons why the opprobrium has lasted so long, because the average person, and in this one I include myself as the average person, simply cannot understand why none of the authorities on either side of the Atlantic have found a single reason why anybody can be prosecuted for any of the things that happened. I mean, I don't want to speak out of the dead, but the hard fact is that they managed to put Al Capone in prison for tax evasion. So it does seem to be quite astonishing that no one, for example, um, at Lehman Brothers, um, has actually borne any of the responsibility for some of the activities that took place in New York over the years leading up to, leading up to the crash of that organisation. In regard to, um, to remuneration, I have to say that I think you would have been absolutely right to ask me that question four years ago. Um, I think if you actually look at the pay of senior executives in large swathes of British industry, and I chair a few public companies, um, so I know something about remuneration there. It's not by accident that last year there was something described as the shareholder spring because people were getting extremely angsty about the pay and rations of senior executives in large British companies. So I think you'll actually find that in the vast number 
of banks now operating, I can certainly talk in respect to my own bank, um, the people working in there are getting paid not only significantly less than they were paid previously, but they're also getting paid significantly less than many of the people doing other sorts of jobs of a comparable nature, A, in other professions, for example, legal and accounting, um, and secondly, in British industry. And I'm not going to tell you that I think that's wrong or right. I'm just telling you it's a fact. So I I think, in reality, the the, the pay for the vast majority of people, and even, I think, the senior people in banks, has been transformed in recent years, and frankly, I don't think before time. Tony, do you want to come back on that or any of the other points? I, I, I would, actually. I mean, one of the things that we heard from Tony Fry, and, and this, his latest reply seems to me is a reinforcement of that point which he tried to make, which is that in, under capitalism you need free banking. Uh, you need banking that's free to do what it's going to go and do. But actually, the truth of it is, and I think the comments, all three comments got to the nub of this, is that actually that never happens in banking, unlike in all other sectors. And the fact is the pay at the top of banking is clearly something which any economics textbook would say should be whittled away by competition, yet it's never whittled away. Martin Wolf, at the beginning of the crisis, had a wonderful column in the FT in which he simply looked at the return on equity in banking against the return on equity everywhere else. And basically, it was double, and it was sustainably double in banking what it was anywhere else. That's, again, something which no economics textbook says should ever happen. So, what's the role of shareholders, we were asked? Well, you're jolly lucky if you get to be one. You know, you, you're, you, you're, you're, you're in an institution that's too big to fail. You're in an institution that privatizes all gains, socializes losses. In other words, you're jolly lucky to be an equity, in an equity position in, in, in that environment. And is there any great surprise that those equity positions beca- got sucked out of the great banks and put into uh, uh, into hedge funds precisely in order to benefit from the barriers to entry and the supernormal profits that were thus generated. William just wants to come just, back. Uh, on the issue, I think there's a very strong case to say that you would be jolly lucky to have been an equity participating employee at an investment bank in the 10 years running up to the crisis, but to suggest that you're lucky to be a shareholder in a bank uh, over the past 10 years um, is, is a million miles from the truth. Not, not least the British government and UK taxpayers are sitting on roughly a 50% loss on their holdings in RBS and Lloyds um, from the top of well, what we thought was the bottom of the market then. The issue, the question raised uh, about shareholders, though, I think is absolutely critical. It's shareholders were screaming along, cheering these banks and bankers along all the way. And I think that it, it very much underlines that shareholders' pension funds, either through neglect because they didn't want to understand or simply because they saw such wonderful returns coming from these banks in the good times, chose not to understand and ask any questions. But it shows the, the, it shows the sort of collective responsibility that we all have, and that to try and blame this on the banks themselves... Very briefly, Tony. Yeah, well, can I, can I just say that I'm not surprised um, that um, we've had some confusion, because obviously there was someone called Tony Fry who made some comments. Anthony Fry made it very clear that changes had to be made. So... Um, you know, I, I think it, I think it it's ill behoves. I mean, we heard a lot of stuff coming out. Let me just give you one irony of the whole banking crisis. Very We've true. heard a lot about the desirability of employees to have a linkage with shareholders and to have a linkage so that their institution behaves in the right way. 
The bank that had the largest percentage of employee shareholding was Lehman Brothers with 42%. If you were an employee of Lehman Brothers, you were obliged to hold those shares for a minimum of 10 years. A minimum of 10 years. The biggest losers when Lehman Brothers collapsed were its employees. So be very careful you don't end up by getting what you most wish for, because sometimes it can actually have unintended consequences. Right. Well, I just wish for a couple more questions before we go to the... Um, there's a gentleman there at the back who's been very patient. Yes, stand up, sir, in the pale shirt, so we can see you. Hi. Uh, very simply, uh, for the proposition, uh, do you think retail banking should be separated from investment banking? Because retail banking is obviously value-adding to us, uh, normal people, whereas investment banking is, in its essence, self-serving for the investment bankers and their w huge was, bonuses. Wasn't, wasn't Northern Rock a retail bank? Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, either way, I'm just, it's a question about whether yeah. retail banking should be separated from investment banking. Okay. Um, go ahead. Another question there. In the, um, there's a lady here with a stand-up ma'am saying to you, thanks very much, the microphone's coming. And then we have a question up there from the, from the balcony. Hi, my name's Hannah Silver. Um, William Wright said that by not loving bankers, we are denying our own role in the crisis. Um, I'm in my late 20s. I'm a full-time writer and theatre maker. I finally paid off my credit card. I finally paid off my student overdraft. No chance of paying off my student loan. No chance of buying a house in the future. Can't imagine that. Or even running a car. Um, I think many people in my generation, are, and younger of course, are suffering from this crisis... So don't say that we had a role in it. I'm not quite sure how you can justify that statement for people of my generation. Did you, do you vote? Of course. No. Okay, well, I, I guess that may be what they meant, but um, we'll um, take a question up there. Sorry? Oh, come on. <laughs> I'm just uh, wondering, it's uh, evidence that over the last six months or so we've had a collapse in trust in our banks and 60% of consumers saying they no longer trust the high street banks. And it seems like the people mopping up those customers are the mutual sector. So, at least in terms of our retail banking sector, should we perhaps not love our high street PLCs and we should love our mutuals more? Splendid. Okay, well, I think we're going to go um, to the closing um, speeches now, where each of the participants has... Um, roughly two minutes, um, possibly three in case of Jennifer, because she didn't say, um, didn't take up her um, full allocation at the beginning. Um, and during that process, the, um, you can vote with the little cards you came, with it, came in, and we will um, then announce the vote at the end. Um, so I'm going to go in um, reverse order, um, starting with Ken. Um, and there were a couple of questions just then to the other side. I'll make sure they get answered um, on the way. But, um, Ken, over to you for well, the final two minutes. I remember, while I was mayor, at a meeting with <laughs> one of um, the leading uh, hedge fund bosses, he said to me at the end of the meeting, what do you earn as mayor? I said, £138,000. He said, that's ridiculous. Oh, the size of your budget, you should be on... Three quarters of a million, half a million, that sort of area. And I immediately felt I'm being cheated. And that point about, you know, it is you know, not just the bankers, it was a whole culture of the last 30 years. I grew up in a, a Britain after the war. When my parents got their mortgage in 1957, they saw it as a burden. By the time my generation were buying their homes, it was an opportunity to get a bigger mortgage. And then you got to this amazing point. You go to get some money out the, 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 the bank um, machine, 
And it also said, would you like to borrow £10,000? Come in. I mean, for the last 30 years in both Britain and America, there's been a culture of encouraging borrowing, encouraging borrowing by individuals, by the state. And I just take the broad view that you should pay for things as you go, or you dump that. Every one of the 13 budgets I produced as GLC leader or mayor of London, with the exception of borrowing for investment in infrastructure, was balanced. And my, I really upset Gordon Brown when I discussed it, described his first budget as cowardly because he carried on um, Ken Clark's policy of borrowing about £18 billion a year to f- fill the gap between what they're spending and what they're taking in. This was five years after the end of the recession. And so, I mean, Ed Ball sometimes laughs and says, I'm a bit of a monetarist, but I just have never been persuaded you can borrow your way to you know, great, uh, a great future. And finally, on the point of manufacturing. You'll never get the old smokestack industries back, but last month the CBI called for a big expansion of our green industries and pointed out that perhaps a third of the growth we're currently getting in the British economy, not so much money, is coming from those green industries. Germany's success has been its increased investment, its banks invested in modernising its industry to the extent that it still sells high-tech manufactured goods to China. And when you think of the difference in the wage rates, that's a stunning achievement. All I'm saying is it's le- let's learn from those countries that have done a bit better. In Germany, the banks are the servant of the economy and not its master. Do I love bankers? I've never actually physically loved a banker, I have to say. <laughs> if... If the motion tonight is carried, and I'm told I must love my bankers, I think I'll turn to that Fifty Shades of Grey and go for a bit of sadomasochism. (laughs) That's wonderful, the sadomasochistic love for the bankers. So an image to go home with. Thank you very much, Um, Ken. Um, Anthony Stroke, Tony Fry. Um, (laughs) Would you like, um, in, just, can you just also, in your remarks, just respond to the question, yes, of, sure. is, is the, isn't the answer here mutuals? They haven't got us into trouble. I will respond to that. I just want to say I love you, Ken, as well, just to be very clear. Um, there's a number of questions at the end which I think are worth answering. You know, I happen to have always been on the camp that believed that mutuals didn't have any right to convert into PLCs. Um, and actually, I happen to think it was one of the huge mistakes made in the late 80s and 90s because I actually happen to think that the people who were running mutuals didn't have the right to make that decision on behalf of all those people who'd invest in those mutuals over the years to create that environment. So, you know, let me make that clear. I happen to think mutuals are doing very well and that they deserve it. Secondly, in regard to retail uh, banking being separated from investment banking, I think you've got to be slightly careful in making sure you get your terminology right. Um, There are a whole lot of products through wholesale banking provided to companies in particular such as hedging foreign exchange exposures and so forth, that I doubt if anyone in this audience would think shouldn't be the preserve of retail and wholesale banking. So splitting these activities is very difficult. I happen to believe the biggest single policy mistake made in the last 50 years was that by the Clinton administration to repeal Glass-Steagall. It's a personal view. I'd like to finish, actually, by giving you, however, a quote from which I read the other day, which I think sums up my view on this. Um, Banks have, at the instruction of politicians, paid down debts and increased capital, capital buffers, Regulation has been piled upon regulation. A tottering pile of bureaucratically defined belts, braces, buttons, zips, bolts and glue aimed at sealing every crack and locking every door against badness. Thousands of jobs have been lost, remuneration has collapsed and the sector shrunk. There is a certain group in society that would like this hang-your-heads-in-shame chapter continue forever. They will not be satisfied 
until the last banker with a hedging product for a UK business that needs to guard itself and all those dependent on it from customers to employees and pensioners against foreign currency movement until that banker leaves the building and turns out the light on a thousand years of Britain as a global trading capital. They hanker for a world of local trade, hidebound business and tightly controlled access to financing, taking us all back to the days when a mortgage was the preserve of the rich and the well-connected, back to the days of the old city, which was a one-gender, ethnically non-diverse, public school-educated elite. They are, of course, wrong. And I happen to believe that that sums up very well the case as to why London's got to get on and love its bankers. Thanks very much indeed. Thanks very much indeed, um, uh, Anthony. And now, um, Adita Chakwati. Um, as a non-white, non-public school educated panellist, uh, let me respond to that. Uh, the motion is London should love its bankers. Um, I've actually not heard anyone this evening argue for that motion. From the other side, what we've heard is London should punish its bankers, London should jail its bankers, London should even regulate its bankers. That's not the motion. Um, I don't hate bankers. I don't wish to hang them. I'd actually just like them to do their job. I'd like them to lend money to the rest of the economy like they're meant to and not lend to their friends and to other banks and into a giant bubble. I want more bankers, but I want them to be bank managers and I want them to be bank clerks. I don't want them to be working to pump up bubbles and come up with fake innovations. The question that we heard at the end about uh, the lady who felt she'd never been part of this bubble in the first place and that she actually was struggling to get by, let alone to go around consuming wildly. Well, I think you're quite right. I agree with you. And that's the problem. It's actually the lack of good jobs in our economy and the lack of economic opportunity to people. It's a direct result of a model in which bankers come first and foremost. Bankers aren't responsible for all of that, but they've encouraged that. And that they benefit from a model which relies upon debt, which relies upon the rest of us not having great jobs. All I'd ask is, rather than ask for London should love its bankers, London should love Londoners. Thank, thank, thanks very much indeed. Now, now you, um, William Wright's next. William, can you answer this very powerful point, the lady ma'am? She's guilty only of having been born at the wrong time and of not having voted for the socialist workers or someone who might have, you know, tried to topple capitalism. She's now having to pay um, to bail out the bankers, and she feels that's wrong. Okay, firstly, I think um, we need to be clear uh, exactly whether you're paying to bail out the bankers or are you paying, are we all paying, not just you individually, because that would be quite a big bill, um, or are, you, are we all paying to bail out government policy, collective government policy, not just UK government policy, but European and US government policy and spending policies over the past 30 years, which I think is a, a very important distinction to make, and I would be very... So she, just for those who didn't hear that online, she was saying, she was quoting back to you that um, by um, being criticising the bankers, you're denying all our role in the crisis, and she feels she's not part of that at all. I suppose by saying that we have a collective responsibility, I'm talking about those people who were economically, uh, perhaps economically active, perhaps further down their careers, perhaps more active in terms of, their, in in terms of voting, perhaps a little older. I'm not saying this in any way... Uh, uh, 
No, uh, in any. So I'm going to have to be a bit disciplinarian here, but um, that's, that's, you've made your point very powerfully, and I'm going to let William finish his now. Oh, well, I don't want to sound like the pre-election debates before the 2010 election where everyone was saying, I agree with, with, uh, with Nick. But in many respects, I agree with Ken. Um, one of the most powerful points Ken made, apart from uh, supporting uh, our argument by talking about how we were are largely complicit in this together, um, was that one of the problems is that too many people don't read their economic history. They don't know their economic history. And when we look back, we'll see that banker bashing has been part of our history uh, for many, many years. This is 1381, the Peasants' Revolt, led by Watt Tyler. A mob marched on the city of London, started a rampage of pillage and violence over three days, which went way beyond Ken's Let's Hang a Banker. They beheaded a particularly unpopular banker called Richard Lyons, the sort of 14th century Bob Diamond, went on to behead the then Chancellor of the Exchequer and Treasurer, and then went and executed 35 Flemish bankers, that's Belgians, before seeking out Lombards and other aliens. In all, they killed 160 people in the city of London that weekend alone. Um, my point there is not that that's necessarily a good thing, or that all the banker bashing that we've had in the past few years has not got quite that far. My point is that economic history is punctuated regularly every five, seven, 12 years by panics, by crashes, by banking crises, uh, and so on. And that there is a tendency on the other side of the argument to, to, to paint a picture that in some way what we saw happening in the last few years was in some way unique in eco economic history and therefore that in some way bankers were uniquely responsible for it, which simply isn't the case. Thanks very much indeed, William. And to wind up the case for the prosecution, or those against the motion, Tony. Thank you very much. Well, the first point I'd like to make is that the other side has indeed been arguing our case all evening. And I wonder whether in some way a little bit of accounting that you might not be all that unfamiliar with, you might not want to give us some weighted share of the votes that you actually get. And it seems to me that this is the kind of practice which you um, regularly uh, engage in. Um, <laughs> which is taking credit where it's not due. Um, we... We were all complicit. I entirely support the questioner from the floor. The point is, it's not even, it's not even the we, you don't even need to, it's not just the, 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 the younger that you have to exclude. It's all of us who weren't in the banking industry. And the fact is that under capitalism, a banker is someone who is entrusted a particular role. And in fact, I'm reminded often of what a trustee is, that, that concept that's used so often in finance. A trustee has all the duties of ownership and none of the advantages. A banker has all the advantages of ownership and none of the duties. This is exactly what we mean by socialising the losses. So the, tr the modern banker has inverted the role of trusteeship and that trusteeship is what allows society to function as a, as, as a pyramid of uh, delegation, that thing that Adam Smith so, uh, so powerfully saw as being exactly what was at the root of, our, uh, of, of, the, of the wealth of nations. So the bankers have gone against the essence of what is needed for the wealth of nations. I'd like to make three very small, quick, very quick points. They pay a lot of tax. We heard that. No, the sums don't add up. If you take the, 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 the bailout and the losses, it doesn't work. Finally, on mutuals, should 
should, should we be supporting our mutuals and should we uh, uh, also be separating banking, investment banking from retail banking? Well, the trouble is, how do we actually ensure that that culture doesn't invade the rest of it? I don't think these remedies are sufficient. Thanks very much indeed, Tony. Particularly from skipping from your first to your third of your quick points, leaving out the second, or possibly leaving out the third. That was very kind of you. Sorry I had to cut you off. And finally, um, Jennifer, who's been incredibly polite all evening, but we've had quite a few insults on the other side. You're welcome to reply in kind or to maintain, or to, or to, or to maintain the moral high ground as you wish. I am just delighted that the other side thinks bankers are voluptuous. Um, Tony gave a very enjoyable talk. It was fact-free but it was enjoyable. I have never heard a description of China's buildup of reserves attributed to the Southeast Asian crisis. It's extraordinary. But let us not quibble. London should love its bankers because finance is what London does best. It would be wonderful, wonderful, if we had a world in which low-end manufacturing paid high wages it would be wonderful if we had a world where as we age we could still have defined benefit pensions and wonderful health care. All of these things would be wonderful. But the hard reality is that for decades we have been trying to live beyond our means. And bankers were the handmaiden to this. Bankers aren't here to serve a utility function, although, by the way, I do think we should separate retail, if you will, banking from the casino. I do think that's right. They are here to make money. They are for-profit businesses. It just so happens that no society for millennia have been able to get by without financiers. So we have a choice. We can, we can have an intelligent discussion about how are we going to go forward in our society and pay for the things we really want, young people who feel they don't have opportunity, older people who want to make sure they have honorable retirements. And we have to figure out what is our competitive advantage. There is no question, and no one on the other side of the table has addressed this, no question that London's competitive advantage is in finance. It would be wonderful to think it was in something else. But that is what we're good at. And so I urge you to vote for the motion because we have to move forward, build on our strengths to get to the society we want to get to. And Yes, that means punishment for those who did wrong. And yes, Ken's right that everyone can't borrow. Governments, people, we can't borrow the way we did. But we're good at this, and we should build on the strength. London should love its bankers. Thanks very much indeed, Jennifer, and to all the speakers for keeping so beautifully to time. We are um, a minute over, uh, but we did give up 15 minutes at the beginning for the uh, um, preliminaries and the um, excellent um, schools debating project, which I commend to you one more time. Please don't mob the speakers at the end. They're going to go out and be in the, in the bar having a drink there, so you can go and either um, praise them or decry them as the um, mood takes you. Um, and I'm going to give you the result. And there's been a number of spectacular shifts. And the first is that the number of don't knows has plummeted from 165 to four. <laughs> um, I'm, I can only assume you weren't listening. Uh, I'm not going to identify you. 
Um, the numbers against the motion, um, who believe that London should not um, love its bankers, have doubled from 140 to 281, which is a terrific um, swing. Um, it means that a large number of the don't knows were captured um, by my colleagues on my left, but sadly not quite enough um, from the point of view of colleagues to my right, that the, those for the motion, those who love the bankers, whether in a um, passionate or sadomasochistic or any other way, um, has gone up from 305 to 338. So the motion is carried by 338 to 281. Thank you all very much indeed for coming. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.